Let's start today with a story. Imagine a cold winter's night in the theater district of Gotham City. A well-to-do couple emerges from the theater, husband with arm wrapped firmly around his wife's shoulder as if to keep her warm from the cold. Just in front of him walks their young son. Occasionally the boy turns back and forth to his mom and dad, laughing and excitedly retelling to them his favorite moments from the movie they had just watched. As they turn the corner to head down a darkened alley, a man emerges from the shadows. The young boy jumps back and clings to his mother's leg. The man who had just emerged from the shadows notices that this couple is pretty well dressed. And the woman is wearing expensive pearls that appear to cost more than enough to cover all of this man's needs for a really long time. So something happens really, really quickly. In the, in the blink of an eye, the man reaches out with an object in hand. It's an old, dirty, derby cap. He says to them, I know you, Mr. and Mrs. Wayne, could, could I trouble you for some money for a poor man down on his luck? The father, the wealthy Thomas Wayne, steps towards the man, looks him in the eyes, and asks him, Well, I'd be glad to help you, but first, tell me more about your bad luck. The beggar begins to explain the tragedy of how he'd been orphaned on the streets of Gotham as a young boy and had struggled to survive his entire life. He's looked for work, but no one would hire him without a home address or an ID. So the wealthy Thomas Wayne tells the man, I can give you $20 tonight. Go get yourself a meal. But, as he hands him a card with an address on it, but if you show up at this address tomorrow and you're serious about changing your life and want to work, I'll give you a job. Breaking down in tears, the poor beggar hugged Wayne and tells him, Sir, I will most certainly be there and I will work harder than anyone else you have ever seen. You know, that, le- that, that evening left a lasting impression on the young Wayne boy, known as Bruce Wayne. This young Bruce Wayne grew up to be the world's greatest philanthropist and built thousands of orphanages and homeless shelters, creating work programs and affordable housing to assist those trapped in the cycle of poverty in Gotham City. All because of that one night. Now, because as you're listening to this, uh, you're likely an American, you could be listening somewhere else in the world, and uh, you've possibly, if you're recognizing maybe some of the details of the story, um, it's because you've grown up in this culture, in the culture that you live in here in the United States with superheroes and comics and Batman movies, which, which seem to always have to tell Batman's tragic backstory. Uh, Because of this, you have a certain sense of how this story is supposed to go, right? But what if someone told you, no, 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 no. That story that you've heard 
that story where Bruce Wayne watches his parents murdered in the back alley of the Gotham Theater District, murdered in a senseless act of violence. That's not the right story. In fact, this is the true story. Hmm. Now, imagine if someone tells you that, but it's not simply a comic book story, but it's somehow a story that's central, a narrative that's central to your own understanding of how the world works, or even more like a story that's central to your understanding of who God is. You'd be able, knowing the story, knowing the Batman backstory, and hearing this other story, that I just shared with you now, you, you'd instantly be able to s- discern the changes in the story, right? I know those of you that have grown up with this, you instantly pick out some things you go, oh, that, that's different in this story. And from those differences, you might actually be able to pick out some immediate implications from the changes in those stories, for, from the changes in uh, this particular, this story. And you might begin to think differently about the way the world works, especially if for some reason Batman's backstory was like a foundational story for you. What might be some things that you notice between, as you think about the differences between the two stories, how it might kind of change what you might think, at least in this case, what a hero is. In the traditional cultural Batman's backstory, Bruce Wayne sees his parents murdered and then goes out and, and vows to fight crime, the, the sort of crime that forever changed his life. And he does so with, you know, in, in, in most cases and in probably the most um, traditional uh, interpretations of Batman. He does so without killing others and doesn't like to use a gun. And so because he saw his parents shot down in front of him. But um, in this story, the narrative changes might make you rethink if you grew up with that as your hero story, you might think twice about, well, no, 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 that's that actually to grow up, dress up like a bat and beat people up in the streets might not actually be the best way to change Gotham. And this story might actually be a better story. Now, I'm not suggesting that the story I just made up is better than the actual Batman backstory for entertainment purposes and all those other things. But it actually, it it might be a better story, right? A story of a kid who actually saw his dad do the right thing and grew up to make a positive change in his city and in the world, not through violence, but, but actually just through selflessly giving of what he had to take care of others. I'm not here to debate whether which story is better than the other, but I'm using this as an example, an example that I hope will become more clear. Now now I want to read you another story, all right? This is one I actually, I didn't make up. So here's how the story goes. And as you're listening, I want you to think about if this story in any way sounds familiar to you and if you notice any differences. So here's how the story goes. We could even say, here's how the verses go. Well-tended is mankind, God's cattle. He made sky and earth for their sake. He subdues the water monster. He made breath 
for their noses to live. They are his images who came from his body. He shines in the sky for their sake. He made for them plants and cattle, fowl and fish to feed them. He makes daylight for their sake. He sails by to see them. He has built his shrine around them. When they weep, he hears. Does that story sound familiar at all? Maybe there's some things about it, like he, God, making people in his image, breathing a sort of breath of life into their noses. Even even the, the idea that he, uh, God, subdues the water monsters. We talked a little bit about that in the last podcast. He makes the sky and the earth and plants and cattle and fish. It might sound familiar because you might go, well, is that actually from the Bible? And the answer to that is no. Those verses or that story is actually not from the uh, Hebrew Old Te- the Hebrew scriptures, what you know Christians frequently refer to as the Old Testament. It's not going to be found anywhere in the biblical canon. This story actually comes from one of Israel's neighbors, the Egyptians. This creation myth is can be found in the instructions to Merikari. That's M-E-R-I-K-A-R-E if you want to look this up online. And it can be dated back to ancient Egypt around 1500 to 2000 years before Christ. Now, to give you just kind of a frame of reference to compare that to, uh, Moses, we don't know for certain when Moses was born, but you know, rabbinic tradition dates Moses's birth to uh, somewhere in the 13th or 14th century BC. So this is at least 100 years before Moses was born, if not 600 years before Moses was born. A story that in some ways actually maybe sounds similar to Genesis 1. On today's podcast, we're going to try to get closer to the location of inspiration in Genesis 1, an inspiration that God vested in a human author or authors who lived in a particular time and place that had a particular language and culture, very similar to our own experience of life, where we have our own language, our own culture. We have stories Stories that maybe have come from other places in the world, stories that maybe have grown up organically in the United States, maybe stories like a Batman backstory. There were stories that were particular to the worldview of ancient Near Eastern peoples, and it's part of the world that they live in. But God vested his inspired authority into the authors of scripture to communicate a story and a message that does have meaning and application for us, but it's first, as we talked about last podcast, it's actually intended first for the people of that day. So if we're going to get down to what Genesis 1 is about, it's it's going to require some humility on our part, uh, a humility that requires us to learn from the biblical world on its terms and to not force meanings upon the text that were likely never intended. So 
What is Genesis 1 all about and how can it help us deal with questions about science and theology, creationism and evolution? Let's explore that together in today's podcast. You're listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with all of our other meaning making endeavors. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. You're listening to part two of what's going to be an unannounced length of a series exploring issues relating to theology and science, creation, evolution, Darwin, and the Bible. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Now, I started this podcast by, uh, you know, sharing a, a maybe a, a fan fiction alternative Batman backstory where he never actually grows up to be Batman, but Bruce Wayne becomes this philanthropist. And I also shared with you a story that I did not write myself, and it actually dates all the way back to potentially 2,000 years before Christ, The uh, found in the instructions of Mary Kari uh, in, in, in ancient Egypt. And I shared that story to bring up a important point. If we're going to learn from the biblical world, the world that the Bible inhabited, especially as we're focusing on Genesis, if we're going to learn from the biblical world and we're going to understand the text, and in particular today we're just focusing in on Genesis 1, if we're going to understand that text and understand it on its terms, it's kind of important to understand a little bit of the world that that text, the author and the audience, resided in. And I bring up that uh, Egyptian creation myth, not in some way as many people do suggest, um, you know, in, in, in perhaps, and I, I don't, I don't want to use terms here that are um, instant, people have instantly like a derogatory reaction to, but uh, this is probably the best terminology we might say are um, Maybe scholars, biblical scholars on the, the more liberal end of the, the spectrum, and I understand that's kind of like a sliding scale here. You know, somebody's always more liberal compared to maybe some other person's conservative standard. And so I don't want to get too bogged down in that term, but I, would also, I will say is this. Some people will maybe perhaps um, look at the ancient Near Eastern creation myths and what they'll go and they'll they'll notice how similar many of them are to the Genesis 1 creation narrative and their argument will be well you see these creation narratives came first and that's actually you know historically from a perspective of at least when the Genesis was eventually written down and it you know it was passed down probably orally for quite some time especially the Genesis 1 creation narrative but even at that um there's there's a legitimate argument to the um ancient near eastern competing religions or surrounding religions to uh, the the Israel the religion of the Israelites uh, to those those creation myths might actually be older they they might be around longer and even that that shouldn't um, necessarily scare anybody because uh, you have to think even in the biblical story in Genesis you know there's um, Genesis one through eleven and then we we get into uh, Genesis twelve and we're introduced right, to Abraham, and Abraham's kind of called out. Um, God reveals himself 
to Abraham. Yahweh reveals himself to Abraham. And, you know, traditionally, it's understood that Abraham was drawn out in a way of, from a polytheistic world that was predated him. And God was kind of like drawing Abraham out of that to reveal something that was maybe lost to him about there being uh, just one God overall. But anyways, some perhaps maybe more liberal scholars and theologians will argue that um, the creation story in Genesis 1 is simply a matter of Israel and the Jewish people trying to make their own story up and they're borrowing stuff. And uh, that's not what I'm, I'm arguing in this podcast. That's certainly not my perspective. But I do think it is helpful if we're going to understand what the words mean in the ancient world, in the world of the Bible, and we want to get closer to the location of inspiration, what we're going to have to do is try to understand some of the the cultural soup that the the Jewish people and the people of Israel were swimming in at that time, so that we can understand um, the differences between the sorts of questions that we're looking to have answered when we go in and read Genesis 1 compared to the sorts of questions that are on their minds, that God inspired an author or authors to communicate to that audience, to reveal something to them about God, to reveal something to them about himself that had perhaps been neglected in these surrounding polytheistic religions that were missing it. Stepping into that world is so important and familiarizing ourselves with the language, the Hebrew language used in Genesis 1, as well as familiarizing ourselves with the ancient Near Eastern world that the text and the author and the audience that the original that the text was originally composed for inhabited is so important because in the same way, if I were perhaps to travel back in time and tell that um, my fan fiction Bruce Wayne um, backstory um, to someone in a different time in a different era that predates the Batman story, they're they're not going to get it. They're not going to notice the differences. But when I share that with you, and if you've seen or have any familiarity with Batman, you were able to pick out some of the differences. And let's say, for example, that perhaps God intended in revealing in Genesis 1 a story about creation that the people in that day could understand in their terms and in their understanding of the world, and yet God wanted to reveal something different about himself. We could say something theologically true about himself that was the most important thing he wanted to communicate. And we see certain elements that reflect this, their ancient worldview. So let's talk about some of these signals and clues that uh, show us a little bit more what Genesis 1 is about, clues that help us understand uh, the most likely communicative intentions of the author or authors to their audience. 
Now, as we dive into this, I, I want to say, just as I brought up in the uh, last podcast, I am forever indebted to the work of Dr. John Walton at Wheaton in Chicago. He is professor of Old Testament, Old Testament scholar, ancient Near Eastern uh, expert. And I highly recommend for you guys picking up his uh, Lost World series. He's got Lost World of Genesis 1, Lost World of Adam and Eve. I think a more recent one was the Lost World of the Flood. And they're great, great scholarship. And they're actually really readable. You don't have to be some sort of like um, academic theologian to understand his stuff. So uh, I'm forever indebted in the material I'm presenting today. Uh, we certainly I am leaning heavily on the work of John Walton, as well as, um, you know, there's other great Genesis commentaries out there that uh, I would, you know, encourage you to check out. So let's talk about some of the differences between uh, when we think about a story that tells us about something about creation and the sorts of questions that we have as modern people about creation and maybe some of the differences that ancient Near Eastern people had when they were trying to wrestle with questions about origin stories, if you will. So here's the first difference. You know, modern people um, look for scientific descriptions of material origins, and that's one of the number one questions that uh, gets debated in this whole faith versus science uh, and and uh, creation creationism versus evolution in these debates uh, people go to genesis 1 and they go to it uh as modern people and I would argue that so many of the questions and the debates that happen about Genesis 1 happen as a result of people actually not submitting themselves to a humbling process of learning from the Bible and the biblical world and the author of Genesis, and instead, again, are like imposing questions on it that it probably doesn't answer or seek to answer or would have been anywhere near their minds. And one of the biggest ones that's a really hard thing for us to think about, because this is just normal for us, when we think about a creation story or we wrestle with how did everything come to be we are instantly starting to think about scientific questions that involve material origins, right? How did we go from nothing to something? And that, again, that's a modern question, and it's a good question. But what I would contend is that it's not a question for Genesis 1 and uh, it's not a question necessarily that the author appears to be trying to answer, that God has inspired the author to deal with different sorts of questions. It's questions that are relevant to ancient Near Eastern people. Ancient Near Eastern people, as you look not just at the Genesis creation story, but you look at the creation myths in all sorts of Semitic peoples in Egypt. Um, in uh, the Baal religions, uh, these stories do not tell stories about material origins, the uh, scientific processes for from how we had nothing and now we have 
something. And guys, even if you look at Genesis 1, which I'd really encourage you to do sometime either during this podcast as you're listening or watching or or read it immediately after, if you read Genesis 1 back through fresh eyes, you'll notice it's really clear. This story isn't even telling us a story about material origins. Why do I say that? Well, let's let's take at least the first couple verses of the text and let's let's explain some things that I think some due diligence as you study Genesis 1 are going to make pretty clear. Uh, first of all, Genesis 1.1. It should be noted, Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 is most, if I shouldn't say most, there's always some dissenting opinion out there, but I will say most, many if not most um, Old Testament scholars, and this, um, this isn't just even in the Christian tradition, this can be in the Jewish rabbinic tradition, uh, acknowledge that Genesis 1-1, that first verse, is really a literary introduction to the story that we see throughout the rest of Genesis 1. And this actually happens, and we know this, when people aren't just making this stuff up. We know this because uh, we see this actually throughout Genesis. For example, I'll just give you a few references here. If you look at Genesis 2-4, Genesis 5-1, Genesis 6-9, those are just a few examples. It actually happens throughout Genesis. There is a, a, a literary introduction that sort of sets the stage for the story. And um, so we could kind of think of Genesis 1-1 as the beginning uh, of uh, an announcement of a story, and that the real narrative, though, actually starts in Genesis 1-2. So if we were to start in Genesis 1-2, one of the things that we'll notice right away, and maybe you won't right away, part of the problem when I say maybe you won't right away is because it takes a while. If we've become familiar with reading uh, this passage a particular way, and it goes all the way back to Sunday school, and we bring in with us that sort of presupposition to the text that this word means this, and um, you, we bring in sort of that movie in our head of how this we've imagined this going down, it can be actually hard to read it uh, looking to be taught from the scriptures. So we should always do this whenever we open up the Bible, be willing to submit our own ideas that maybe we've heard to the actual authority of the biblical text that God uh, has, again, endowed with authority. If you read, uh, starting at Genesis 1-2, I think you'll notice something that's really interesting. Look at it even right now if you have the opportunity to. Genesis 1-2, I'm going to pull it up here and I'm going to read it. So think of this again, and maybe as the beginning of the story, Genesis 1-1 is the literary introduction. Genesis 1-2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, or formless and void. I'm reading in the NIV. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I want to state something that's actually pretty obvious from the text. The material universe is already present here. Now, I when I highlight that, I am not uh, attempting to say um, to to counter the the historic Christian doctrine doctrine of creation ex nihilo ex two words Latin word n i h i l i o. 
I think I, I spelt that right. I'm not attempting to counter that. In fact, um, what I, I'd, I'd say actually is that there are better places in the Bible to derive that uh, theological view. But Genesis 1 actually isn't a good place to go to for that. At least, um, I, I guess you could say, well, Genesis, if you're maybe almost doing sort of a gap theory sort of thing that Genesis 1-1 is telling us something, and then Genesis 1-2 tells us the beginning of something else. But uh, as we look at this, guys, Genesis 1-2 is clearly already presenting that there is a material universe already present. So again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that um, <clears throat> God, when he created, was uh, whatever that first moment was when something came from nothing, that uh, God was stuck with some sort of like pre-existing materials that he already had to work with. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is what, what is the author of Genesis 1? What is the text actually showing us? It's telling us something, and I, it's not telling us actually about how the physical processes of the material universe came to be. There already is a material universe already present. And some people might go, well, doesn't it say, you know, formless and void or formless and empty uh, in regards to the earth? Well, first, the response to that would be, there's already something that the author is saying is earth. There's water. There are material things already here. So earth, the seas, there's water, there's darkness. And if you did some um, research into ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, and cosmology is just a fancy word to kind of describe, you know, um, universal background stories, um, maybe backstories of reality. Maybe that's a, a fun way of describing what cosmology is. You'll notice that these ancient Near Eastern creation myths share this similar characteristic. They don't actually go into like the material processes, what we might think of as like, well, was there a big bang in a moment? It, it, it just doesn't do that. Um, and that's just because for whatever reason, ancient people didn't have that sort of question on their mind. This is a, a more modern question. I think uh, one of the things that also be important to note, we talked about this uh, in the last podcast, was when you see, uh, there's some important terminology I want to discuss here that comes up already in Genesis 1-2, and it takes both a, uh, some knowledge of Hebrew, which again, I don't, I don't speak Hebrew. I, um, I, I'm not fluent in any way, shape, or form in Hebrew, and I'm, I'm actually, you know, dependent on uh, scholars of language of the ancient Hebrew language. And that's the beautiful thing is you guys don't have to be experts too. You can find the experts that have given their lives to this. But anyways, these experts will highlight um, some of the ways in which when we think of these words and the difficulty that biblical translators have in interpreting these words, we might come up with different notions of what those words mean than what the ancient people mean. For example, and I talked about this last time, but um, 
it's very common in the ancient Near Eastern world of this time for, especially among Semitic peoples, which would be the case for the people of Israel, that uh, darkness and sea or darkness and water, they are um, they are forces of chaos or, or symbols of what we might say are non-order. And we see this throughout um, many other creation stories of of that time. So it's very, very logical to consider that the people of Israel who lived in that that culture, that those words carried that sort of meaning for them too. So again, in Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and empty, and I'm going to talk about those two words as they're translated. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We have a material, we have stuff in the universe, we have actually stuff in the earth already, but it appears here that it's in a state of non-order, or even potentially disorder. But one of the interesting things here to note right away is that many of the, the neighboring creation myths, like, you know, ones involving Marduk, for example, there is a sort of like cosmic struggle among uh, creator gods and chaos gods. And there's a fight and a struggle. And instantly, right away, I think, again, if we think about the Batman backstory comparison, and we start putting these stories side by side, and we ask ourselves, like, what is God trying to communicate to his people? I think one of the things right away, and this is what makes studying this stuff so exciting, and then you get to really get at, uh, I think, the inspired intentions. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Guys, that is so different than the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories that are out there that frequently pit a struggle, a fight. There's no fight here between God and any sort of symbol of chaos. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. So Genesis 1-2, there's also another important um, term or phrase here that deserves getting addressed in order to maybe, again, kind of further cement this point that we're, we're not really dealing with a story that's trying to tell us about scientific material origins. It's actually trying to tell us and tell the people of that time and subsequently us another story. And it's the words formless and empty or formless and void. Now, when biblical translators have to do this really difficult job of attempting to take words uh, in a different language, and in this case, an ancient Hebrew language, um, and they're they're trying to do the really difficult task of how do how do we make these words mean what they meant to the people at the time and yet find the proper words to communicate to people today it's a really really difficult job and so you, this is why you might see variances in the phrase formless and empty and you might see in other places formless and void um, but what biblical translators have to do is they have to, especially in really rare cases where there is a, a weird combination of words that you don't see frequently in other places in the biblical text, in this case, like 
Genesis as part of the Pentateuch. Uh, This phrase in particular, formless and void or formless and empty, is a particularly troubling one, and there's some debate about how to rightly translate uh, that phrase. And the problem is, is because the combination of the two Hebrew words, tohu webohu, occurs only two other times in the Old Testament. And if you want to look those up, they're in Isaiah 34, verse 11, and Jeremiah 4, 23. Um, bohu never occurs by itself. So um, it's nowhere in the Bible. So this 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 phrase, tohu we bohu, uh, this Hebrew phrase, it's hard for biblical translators. But if we were to look at those other places and try to understand, like, what does that phrase mean to help us understand perhaps what the intentions are in using that phrase in Genesis 1? You might find some interesting, uh, interesting stuff. And in fact, as you look at that, um, you, you might see that uh, tohu webohu is, uh, has a different meaning than just kind of like a serene emptiness, okay? It actually carries a picture of it of a wasteland, right? A wilderness, maybe. Um, you know, we could, if we wanted to just break the two words down, tohu uh, occurs more than, uh, or around 20 occurrences. Uh, it happens in Isaiah. Um, we, we see that word describing a wilderness or a wasteland. It can actually describe um, a state of destruction, as in the case of Jeremiah 4.23. But it can also, along with those things, convey um, that word by itself, without the webohu, can denote things that have no purpose or meaning. So, uh, again, as, as Dr. John Walton highlights, uh, and this is a quote from uh, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, all of its uses, in referring to tohu, all of its uses can be consolidated in the notion of things that are of no purpose or worth. They are lacking order and function. And that's going to be key. That's a key to understanding Genesis 1 and the story that God is telling through the writer and authors of Genesis 1 to that audience, that we are talking about something that was very much in the minds of ancient Near Eastern people. Questions about order and function. So Walton argues that the, what he calls the pre-creation situation is that it's a, it's a condition that is not actually lacking material things. In fact, what we're seeing here is a description of creation that is lacking order and purpose. It's lacking function. And so perhaps formless, if it in your mind brings up a connotation of just like blank emptiness, that's probably not the best way to think about it. So I think that's an important distinction, right? Formless and void is a description of non-order. It's a description of purposelessness. It's a purpose. Uh, it's a picture of the universe, or at the very least, the earth lacking order and purpose. So let's keep that in mind as we as we move forward in 
the rest of Genesis 1. Now, if we begin with Genesis 1-2 and maybe understand it in uh, from the perspective of ancient Near Eastern people, and we have a story, a story that deals with questions that they are dealing with, perhaps not questions about um, scientific processes of material origin of things in the universe, but questions about order and function, we see a story in which uh, in the beginning, God made everything. Literary introduction, right? He, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth. Now, here's how the story goes. Let's start with lack of order. There is stuff, and it does not have a function. Now, as we look at the rest of Genesis one through that lens, what do we see? We see God providing order and particular functions to things in the uh, daily lives, the important world of ancient people. We see God naming and separating. Again, these are uh, terms that denote for ancient people, ancient Near Eastern people, I should say in particular, the naming of something was to assign a function to it, was to assign an order to it. And you just have to think about the world of ancient people. We live in a relatively maybe ordered world already, and we, um, we understand through like this, the advancements, advances in science, cause and effect. And, you know, we have running water and electricity and you know, it's pretty amazing. Like I'm talking to you on, you know, this, these strange devices where you've got stuff plugged into your ears and it works or you're watching on YouTube. It's amazing. We have a lot of order around us, but for ancient people, um, that are still exploring and moving into new territories and their struggles for order, order is not a given. And there's wilderness outside of the city walls. The many cases, especially in like ancient city states, you could move outside of the the walled city, and now you you're in wilderness. You're in chaos. You are in a state of disorder. And this is a world that's important to ancient people. So what do they need to know? They need to know. That God, the God revealed in the Torah, the God who revealed himself to Abraham and his descendants, they need to know something about that God and what sort of order and purpose he designates to the world that he has created. And we see this throughout Genesis 1. In biblical terms and in the minds of the uh, ancient Israelites and many of their neighbors to order something was a sacred act. In uh, in Genesis one, we see God's ordering, and we could go through each verse. Right, let's we could go to verse three. God said, "Let there be light." What what is He doing? He's naming something. Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and He separated. What did He do? He provided a function to it, 
a separation of light from darkness, calling the light day and the darkness he called night. This is not talking about, and it's really clear because we uh, we don't actually we don't actually have some sort of declaration of um, greater light and lesser light, or you know, sun and moon. But it actually doesn't say sun and moon. We don't have a designation of that till. Uh, you know, let's see how many days in, into it again. Is it day day four? Um, so this is naming. This is about giving order and function to something. So here is God providing order, and there's light, and there's darkness. Um, there's evening, and there's morning. And what does that provide? That provides a purpose, order, and function of what a first day. And verse six here, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And that's so strange for modern people, but this is just kind of like part of the cosmology and the the way that people thought um, the world worked and structured was that you had water above and you had the waters beneath. And, you know, you have to picture almost, um, and maybe I'll provide one here in the video. Uh, for for those that are watching here, when I go back and edit this, a picture of like what ancient people thought the world looked like, and uh, and there was a watery atmosphere, but there was also water underneath, like the surface of of the earth, and um, so there's a separating of the two, the separating of the waters, and what does that do? It provides a habitable place for creation to live. What kind of creation? Okay, so we get um, the vault separated the water under the sky. Now we're in verse 7. And it was so God called the vault sky, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, let dry ground appear. So what's happening? Now there's ground. Order, function, right? So this is a story again. We have to think of it not about explaining. I think if we go into this with the sorts of questions that we want to impose on the text, like um, whether or not these are days that are 24-hour periods and then God actually, like the material composition of things happened on this day, I, I think you're asking a question that's not intended of the text. In the same way, so let me just say this. This isn't to disparage anybody that um, considers themselves what they might call a young earth creationist. And I'll tell you why later that I don't want to, this isn't an argument about young earth, old earth, and other things. I want to get to what Genesis 1 is about so that we can maybe then delve uh, into a debate among things, among perspectives that are being informed by other things than Genesis 1. Because I I would argue Genesis 1 isn't telling us anything about the age of the earth. It is not, from an ancient person's perspective, telling us about the specific days things materially were made but there is a sequence here of order and function, and there is differences between God's story to Israel and the story like the one you heard at the beginning of this podcast, to the way God intends creation to function. And that's important. 
That is important. The same time, there's people I know, like uh, there are people that go, well, uh, I'm an old earth creationist. And so maybe these different days represent a sort of progressive creationism. Maybe, but that's not a question for this text. That's not a question that's on their mind. And, and who knows? You know, here's the thing to, um, I don't want to discourage people from the possibility of when they read the Bible, there being maybe like a devotional meaning. Like, you know, sometimes if you've spent any time as a Christian and you've been in the Bible, there's times, and I've had this experience before, where it seems like a particular verse or passage is just lifted off the page and it it hits me and it does something to me. And uh, I'm I'm not sitting there with uh, you know commentaries and concordances and doing like an exegetical study. It just it hits me, right? I, I don't want to diminish the possibility of that happening. But what I would say is this: if we don't actually do the work of trying to get to the location closer to the location of inspiration, um, what we can have is again, as I talked about in the first podcast an effectively meaningless Bible because everybody can extract whatever meaning they want. That isn't to say that there couldn't be the possibility of the Holy Spirit just like illuminating something for personal devotion. But I think when we get down to like teaching things like doctrine, or we start getting into scientific arguments, it's dangerous to make the text say something that we want it to say instead of submitting ourselves again to what biblical inspiration is about and the journey of biblical inspiration from God as the source to us today. We have to go through the proper steps. As we can see here, guys, when you start diving into this, we're, um, you know, for those that would maybe be like progressive creationists, right? And they're, they're trying to reconcile what appears to be a really old earth and, and evidence in the geological data, uh, data of perhaps certain phases in creation happening. And they go to the text and they go, see, here's evidence of this. I have to say, this isn't the place to argue that. In the same way, this isn't the place to argue about the age of the earth. And you go, this is Genesis 1. See, it happened here. That's not a debate for this text. To do so, um, to do so, I think, just misunderstands what is happening here in Genesis 1. So maybe it'd be helpful to just kind of go through each day in Genesis 1 and to try to maybe... Um, open up some of the most likely ways that this particular text was intended uh, to be understood. So, uh, you know, we, we we talked about what was, we could say, is day one, and we see God naming periods of light and darkness, day and night. Um, and these are periods that are created and created uh, in the um, ancient sense, right, isn't, again, about necessarily nothing to something, but it's about ordering and separating so that we have function. We see the ordering of our existence, our daily existence around time. Makes a lot of sense, right? Day two. Um, everybody, again, in the ancient world, as I talked about in that last segment, 
understood. This was just kind of like part of their worldview. And I don't think God is trying to tell them scientific information that they wouldn't be able to handle. You know, um, this, this is, this is like, you know, there will probably be some massive changes in science a hundred years from now that we couldn't possibly understand. It'd be like, you know, can we, could you possibly imagine trying to travel back to even like the day, the era of the American revolution in the late 18th century and try to explain to them what the internet was? It just wouldn't work. So, um, I don't think anybody should be put off by, uh, a depiction in day two of waters above and waters below that isn't in accordance with modern science, that, that God is trying to reveal something else within a, a palette that the people can understand. This isn't scientific information. Everybody in that ancient world of that time thought about the cosmos that way. So what is God doing in the separation of it? And it leads into to day three. Um, where we see the emergence of water, dry land, plants, and the verbs used in uh, day three do do not describe God making, right? The seas are gathered, dry land appears, plants sprout, all right? So again, this is talking about order and function. We see the basis for food production in day three. And this is a world that's really important to ancient Near Eastern people that uh, their lives are very much more attached to the land than we would be, perhaps those of us that live in the suburbs or the city. So there's a story being told here about God has created an order, right? He has um, he has assigned a function, a function that you can actually, and there's this is going to be this call later, a function that you are par- called as a human being, as an image bearer to participate in. Um, we could talk, let's talk a little bit about day four. Um, you know, it's important, important observation to make, right, is in the ancient Near Eastern world, that people were not aware that the sun, the moon, and the stars were material objects at all. Um, in fact, like the biblical description is reflective of the worldview of that time. They in Israel called them lights. They are lights in sort of a, a canopy of the sky. And in much of the other ancient Near Eastern world, they were gods. Now, here we go. Here's one of the great, great things that comes as you start studying this stuff and you go, all right, we're on day four already. And if I think about this from a scientific perspective, I, I just can't, I can't make sense that you don't have sun or sunshine, but yet you had light. You have plants, things growing and sprouting on the earth. How do you have life on the earth without the sun? And again, when like if we impose some modern understanding on uh, uh, modern scientific questions on this, it doesn't even make sense. It's like nonsensical. But when we step back into the ancient world, it makes a lot of sense. It actually makes a lot of theological sense. What is God teaching Israel? A huge lesson that can be learned from the way this is ordered in Genesis one is that Israel is surrounded by. 
uh, neighboring people who part of many of, if not most of their, their own, um, religious ideas, if you were included the idea that the lights in the sky, the stars, the sun and the moon were actually gods. And astrology was this, a huge part of the ancient world because these stars are actually in somehow gods. Um, these stars actually affect your daily life. And, you know, astrology is still a thing today. If you pick up your, hor- you know, a horoscope and a, you know, do they, I don't know. I haven't picked up a newspaper in quite some time. Do they still, do they print horoscopes and newspapers or maybe that's just in like Cosmo magazines for, or I don't know. I don't know where you'd find a horoscope anymore, but I I think it's still a thing. And it was based on this ancient idea that the stars and the the, the night the luminaries in the sky actually affected your life. And there's a amazing, beautiful statement, theological statement that Israel needed to know. And this is one of the things that made them distinct. These are just lights in the sky. And guess what? God didn't even make it till day four. They're getting demoted in the minds of ancient people. Just lights, not gods. They're not where God that created lived. Guys, this is awesome. But if you get bogged down and like, boy, how does the science of that work? You're, you're just, you're totally missing it. What a beautiful incredibly deep theological truth to reveal to people surrounded in that world. God is saying, nope, that's not how Bruce Wayne was um, turned into a hero. He's saying, no, these lights in the sky are lights. That's what they are to be for you. Now, is that a, a scientifically accurate description? No. I mean, the sun is a, a massive burning ball of gas that keeps the life going in our, uh, on our planet. And, uh, you know, golly, it's way more than that. But what does the people, what do the people of that time need to know? What is God speaking to them? Where is the inspired communication? And if, again, don't get hung up. Day four, how is their son? There's day. And, you know, people that look at that, many people that do this, even atheists do this, and they mock and ridicule Genesis. And they go, how can any of you guys believe this nonsense? It, it doesn't make any sense. And they're doing the same thing that actually many Christians do by trying to come to the text and ask it questions that it's not seeking to answer. Day four shows us something beautiful and amazing. It's that God God has ordered the cosmos, the stars, the sun, and the moon. They are not gods. They don't affect your life except for, you know, if you stand outside too long, you're going to get a sunburn. And they're, you know, they're important for life on the planet, but they're in no way gods or spiritual beings. And that, that's a serious revelation right there. Now let's look at day five. Uh, day five is what, what? What could we maybe extract if we were to um, step into the the minds of people in this ancient world? Again, I think something should be 
observable from the text, even without doing that, that God says the waters should like teem with living creatures rather than saying anything about how he made them. Um, this again is talking about the function of the waters, especially for ancient people, right? Is, is to be filled. It's to serve this purpose of being filled with living creatures. It, it's, uh, as Dr. John Walton talks about, it's, it's similar to the way maybe that furniture fills a room and beautifies it, but it also gives the room a particular function. So, the Hebrew word for create used throughout each one of these days in Genesis 1 is berah, the, uh, berah, the and, and, and we see throughout the Bible that this, is, this, this word is f- frequently used to denote the act of giving a role and a function in an ordered system. And that's, a, that's again, uh, a quote from um, John Walton's the, the Lost World of Adam and Eve, I think the second book in um, this sort of trilogy, maybe. <laughs> and um, that, that's, a, again, an important distinction. We also see on day five that there are these sorts of, um, maybe even, it might be the King James, uh, and you can look this up for yourself, compare some of the different translations, but it might be the King James or other translations talk about God making on, um, you know, on, on, on day on day five, um, making the, uh, like, the great uh, sea monsters or, or sea uh, uh, creatures. And, um, you know, that's an, that's an interesting statement, right? Um, you know, verse 20 again says, God, uh, this is the NIV said, let the water team with living, living creatures, let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky again, function. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing. There is some, uh, there is some good debate to be had as to whether or not it's a better translation just to say the great creatures of the sea or to talk about them as the great sea monsters. I think there's a really strong possibility here that um, whether maybe it's intended or not, an ancient person, ancient Near Eastern person, reading Genesis 1, they get to um, day 5, and they see uh, talk about a... Uh, creatures of the deep, it's important to note that these, in the ancient Near Eastern world, these creatures of the deep are not just like whales, um, but there is a cosmological significance to them that they are frequently representative, and we talked about this in the first podcast, they are sort of um, chaos monsters, right? There's chaos monsters that live in the water, they're chaos creatures. you know, even in the Greek world, they had that. The Greeks referred to them as daemons, D-A-I-M-O-N, which is where we get the word demon from. And, um, you know, the Hebrew word is, uh, is tannin. And uh, again, NIV calls it the, the great creatures of the sea. Um, but in other places, tannin in the Old Testament, if you see, again, Job chapter 7, verse 12, you can check that out. 
or Isaiah 27 verse 1, for example, that word is referring to the sorts of chaos creatures. So there's another theological statement that's happening here. Again, and it even goes back to the beginning of Genesis 1. You don't actually see uh, creation isn't the result of divine struggle against good and evil. No, uh, God is sovereign over even those forces, and they don't give us an explanation. It doesn't give us an explanation, just like as we'll talk about in the next podcast. There's no explanation for where the serpent comes from. It's not an explanation for it, but there is still yet a theological statement about this. And I, I, I'm of the opinion that uh, it makes sense from the Hebrew word tannin, T-A-N-N-I-N, that as it's used in other places in the Old Testament to refer to uh, the sort of chaos creatures of that ancient Near Eastern world, I think there's a theological statement being made here that, yes, e, you know, God is a sovereign over those things. And that, I think, for an ancient Israelite would provide a sense of comfort in the same way that we Christians today are hopefully supposed to gain a sense of comfort in Christ's victory over Satan. And we know the pecking order, that the that that evil, that Satan um, does not usurp uh, the, the goodness and the sovereignty of God. So again, day five gives us some other really interesting theological insights um, that are just amazing for these ancient peoples. Um, one other thing to note from 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 day five is we see the uh, the the blessing and creation of of animals and their um, their their reproductive uh, sort of blessings, right? God made the wild animals, and there's this interesting phrase according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to kinds. Why is livestock in particular mentioned? Well, in the ancient world, it's an agrarian, largely an agrarian society, especially among Semitic peoples. So livestock, we're talking about order, right? Livestock will produce according to their kind. It's giving them an insight into God's order and function and showing them, hey, you know what? Like, Livestock are going to produce more livestock. That's important and valuable to them. It might not be that important or valuable to us today unless uh, you're a farmer. But again, day five, great theological truths in day five. So as we head into day six in Genesis 1, it's important to note that what we've seen thus far in Genesis 1 in day, especially focusing on day 2 through 5 thus far, also I guess you could say this is the case for day 1, is uh, what we have are descriptions of what happens cyclically in creation, right? Day and night alternate, plants sprout, the sun shines, the oceans are always going to be teeming with life. And this is why um, I think it's appropriate, as, as Walton, Dr. Walton, argues, that if we were going to give a, a title to Genesis 1 uh, thus far, I think maybe an appropriate title would be to call it God and World Order. 
I think that's a great description because it's describing um, to the the people that the the processes that they already are observing are already happening happening a, a continual process of day and night plants sprouting the the circle of life among animal creatures reproducing according to their kind is a uh, is a is a statement, a theological statement, especially when that order has been brought about by God's activity in it, that it's saying something to those ancient people, right? Again, the stars aren't dictating this. There's aren't, there's not other gods that are in control. We don't have multiple gods that are in control, one in control of your harvest and another one control of your cattle, right? This is a theological statement that differentiates. It tells a different story to Israel than the stories that they were used to hearing. Now, again, this gets us to day six. Day six as humans, right? It's the most important day. But what is it with this whole being made in the image of God? Again, I think this is where doing some due diligence into the ancient Near Eastern culture can help us maybe understand, derive the deep theological truths that are being communicated in Genesis 1. Here's just one great example. You know, it was very common for, in like the Assyrian Empire, for example, you know, a neighboring empire to, um, to the people of Israel, that um, kings would frequently make images of themselves, like statues, and they would place those statues in cities that had been conquered, or they put them at like checkpoints and borders. And what they were doing by placing the image of themselves in that place was to say, though I am not maybe here as king in a sort of um, material sense, I am present here in this image. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that as it relates to day six, God making humans in his image and likeness. Because what this has to do, and it has to, it connects to all of Genesis, the rest of Genesis one, where we see God announcing order and function, taking what was non-order, tohu webohu, and now out of that, he's giving naming, separating, he's giving order and function. And day six, he's got image bearers that he makes, maybe even like a king, uh, an Assyrian king might place an image of himself, and that image is to represent that he's there. So then what are the image bearers of God called to do? Genesis 1, we can start at verse 27, gives us the answer. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, here's a designation of function. Again, an assignment of a job description, if you will. 
be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. This is such an amazing description because God is uh, pronouncing here uh, again, within the text, a theological truth, an important truth that he was communicating to his people about not the questions that we have of, um, you know, uh, gosh, evolution and, and, and questions uh, about, you know, how did we emerge out of Africa and clashes between different groups of homo sapiens, the stuff, you know, scientists are, are wrestling with, and maybe you're a scientist and you, you, you come in and, um, or an anthropologist even, and you've got these questions and you're, you're coming to the text and you're looking for an answer. It's, it's clear. We're not, nothing like that is being talked about here because that's not what's on their minds. It's not in their purview to wrestle with that question. What are they wrestling with? They're wrestling with what is my function and purpose in the world, which is actually a more important question because that question gets to something existential at us that if we, you know, we don't have that answered and we, we live without order and without function and chaos rules, then we don't even have the resources or mental capacity to pursue the sorts of questions about material origins of uh, of humanity, or maybe if you prefer the human species. So God assigns them an order. And what is it? That order and that function is to bring about more order and function in the world. They are to subdue and rule. And this isn't like a, there's some, there can be some bad theology that has come out of this um, particular section in Genesis 1 where subdue and rule is about just dominating the world. No, no, no. When you keep in mind that humanity, male and female, which is just crucial, another amazing distinction that's kind of way outside of its, um, its time and its contemporaries that male and female are both uh, image bearers. But if you, again, keep in mind that as image bearers, they are essentially acting as the presence of God in the world. To subdue and rule is to do what? It's to do what you've just seen described throughout uh, previously in Genesis 1. It's about giving order and function to a world that, as you go out and explore, seems perhaps to have um, needs for more order and function. It's amazing. And how should you do that? You should do that in the same way that God does. Walton uh, calls it uh, acting as God's vice regents in the continual process or continuing process of bringing order. This is an amazing insight. Um, This is an amazing directive given to the people of Israel uh, through Genesis 1 and now subsequently to us. 
Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's oh, it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful description, a wonderful job description. Now, a discussion about Genesis one would be incomplete without properly addressing what happens on day seven. This is again another area where if we import our ideas of what the word rest means, uh, it's it's kind of confusing. It doesn't make sense. I remember as a kid. You know, hearing the the Genesis one uh, creation story, just going like, boy, that doesn't make sense. Why would an omnipotent God need to take a break? Like, was creation that tiring? Does does God get tired? And it just didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense because I was doing again what I think many people still do, not just kids. Many people do by importing their own meanings of words to the text that are are nowhere within the minds of the author or the audience that it was first addressed to. The beautiful thing about the seven-day story, which provides a theological description of God's ordering and the call to humanity to become participants in the righteous ordering and governing of the world that they inhabit, is that day seven is the goal. And we know this is the case because we can't just read, actually, we can't read Genesis 1 just in isolation. Genesis 1 and the book of Genesis, even of itself, can't be read really in isolation. It's part of the Pentateuch and central to the law. The Torah is the notion of Sabbath, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, the end of the week. This was so significant, but it's significant in a way that we don't fully understand. And actually, in many ways, Jesus corrected uh, the Pharisees in the wrong understanding of what Sabbath was all about, what rest was all about. Rest is God's objective in creation. And we understand rest properly. I think it's, it, for me, this revolutionized my understanding of Genesis 1 and my reading of the scriptures. Day 7th is the, is the telos. It, it tells us about the telos. That's a, 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 maybe a Greek philosophical term. The end goal, the objective, is rest. What kind of rest? Is it taking a nap? No, no, no. Uh, there's a better way, I think, to understand this. Why? Maybe the question should be asked like this. Why is God ordering creation? Why is he providing it a function? Why should humanity participate in that ordering and participate in taking, maybe especially as humans go out and as we, you know, we think about this in really concrete terms, as humans actually go out and explore the world, and they might feel like they're entering dysfunction or chaos, and they're bringing order to that. What is the goal of that? Why do you do it? Rest, Sabbath is the goal. And when properly understood, this is not about God taking a nap, but it is actually about God coming and abiding living and inhabiting what he created. And there's a really helpful analogy, again, that, um, that, that Walton uses 
in this regard. Think of it like the ordering of a home. Uh, If any of you have purchased a home or maybe rented an apartment, you do this really difficult process, right? It's terrible. It's awful. We just went through it last year. I don't ever really want to do it again, but it's necessary. And you take all your stuff, take all your stuff from one place, and um, there's you move to a house. Now, at some point, that house was actually built, right? And it is, um, I think... uh, a clear uh, theological truth that we can actually derive from other places. And I think one a great place to go to is John 1, um, and Colossians 1 is another place that that points to God is the builder of the house of creation. I, I just don't think that Genesis 1 is trying to necessarily tell us about the building project. What Genesis 1 is trying to do is, as Walton highlights, is to talk about how the house becomes a home. And that seems... Uh, that, 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 that might seem like a, a not a big distinction, but it is. Um, so let's say you buy a house or an apartment or something like that. You bring all your stuff. It's there. Maybe the house needs some work. Maybe it needs some reordering. But you bring the things that you have, and when you go into the home, it's just empty space. There might be some pre-designated areas, right, when you go into a home, just be based on the appliances and the plumbing and stuff like this is going to be a bathroom this is going to be a kitchen but you also have lots of rooms just empty rooms and what those rooms become has a large a large part of what they become has to do with what you bring into it the point though of when you move your stuff into the home isn't just to build something or to make something or to order something What is the purpose of you getting a home, getting all of your belongings, ordering it, maybe fixing it up, putting a bed in a room that you do what? You name it, you call it a bedroom, and that assigns an order and a function, and you have a living room that you name a living room, and then what do you do? You order it so that it acts like a living room, but what's the point of all of it? The point is to live in the home. This, man, guys, when when I got this about rest, it was a game changer because this is actually like a, this is an eschatological statement from the get-go. Eschatology, um, you know, that's, that's a big fancy word maybe for some of you, and that, that's simply to... Uh, a word that describes God's end goal for creation or a study of the end time, end things, the the way the story is supposed to wrap up. That's a better way of putting it. I think when we start using the phrase end times, people start wigging out about computer chips and antichrists and the European Union and left behind books and stuff like that. But this is an eschatological statement that 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 says something about what God intends to do with creation. And what is he intending to do? Inhabit it. To rest. To rest means to have ordered. And now we have order and we order so that we can abide. The goal of all ordering activities that the Israelites are called to do throughout the Torah and in even to the, the prophets prophets is the right ordering of the the place that God has given them 
is so when they can cease from fighting, that they would actually live in that space. They cease from their building. Why? So that they can live there, to abide there. This is just, oh my goodness, guys. To think of creation, God's goal in creation, to have himself abide in it, is beautiful, and it wraps the whole biblical story, a theological story together that, again, in the Christian tradition, doesn't end in um, the Hebrew Bible, but it continues all the way to Revelation. And what's the picture that we get at the end of Revelation? New heavens, new earth. God comes, dwells with his people. He is the light in the city. Heaven and earth become one. New Jerusalem. What happens? God rests in his creation. Now, maybe you're asking, that sounds wonderful, Paul, but where in the world would you actually, like, where do you get that from this? Let's, let's address that question. So I believe we have sufficient evidence from an understanding of the ancient Near East and also an understanding from the, the rest of the, uh, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that can point us to this sort of... Um, idea that rest is about God's indwelling of a place. And it's connected very much to a sort of uh, understanding of ancient temples in the ancient Near East, which include, of course, biblical temple and Solomon's time. In both the Bible and the ancient Near East, there is a process of uh, ordering and uh, the, the ordering of a functional temple. And at the end of that period, there is frequently, and this is not just the, the case in um, Solomon's temple, which has an interesting connection to the seven days, uh, in that it, uh, Solomon's construction of his temple took seven years. That, that's an intentional parallel there. Um, that at the end of that period, there was a, uh, we could say like an inauguration ceremony that happens where the physical structure that was a temple actually isn't a temple yet until, uh, as ancient Near Eastern peoples believed, but as Israel actually had made manifest in uh, Solomon's temple, the God, and in the case of Israel, God, Yahweh himself, comes to inhabit that place. It's, it's the case in Solomon's temple. It, it, took, it took Solomon seven years to, um, to build the, uh, the temple of God in Jerusalem. And at the end of the seven years, they had sort of an inauguration ceremony. And what was the point and the purpose of the ordering and the construction of the temple? It served the purpose of God's presence. Doing what? Resting in the temple. The temple then becomes sacred space. So let's maybe reframe Genesis 1 as a story about sacred space. A story that provides the people of Israel not only with theological insights that can that can sort of correct the wrong stories that they've been surrounded with, right? Those stories that maybe 
even had hints of things that sounded true. You know, we 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 heard in the the uh, Egyptian creation myth at the beginning of the podcast uh, stuff about you know people being in the image uh, of God, and you might go, boy, you know, what's the deal with that? That seems pretty close to true. And maybe that's a whole other discussion for another time. But what we see in Israel's creation story that 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 God divinely inspires to them is that it, it says something different, different than the stories around them. And in that difference, there is deep theological truth that would help them understand what God is like. There's also sort of an existential truth, a, a truth about how they should live. It gives them an order and function, a way to live in the world. And then it also tells them the point of all of it, a point that they would be reminded of. And we have to keep in mind, you know, and this is where we can maybe get into some textual criticism. Let's, let's say, let's say in some way, shape or form, Moses was uh, the primary author, at least at some point, a contributing author to the, uh, the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. You know, by the time uh, the, the the Pentateuch is is widely circulated and maybe moves out of oral tradition. It's very likely this doesn't happen until the exilic period, after which, long after Solomon's temple has existed, and you have a people that are in captivity and they don't know their founding story. You know, we we see this in uh, in the case in in Nehemiah, where like the people had just had no clue; they had never like they didn't had never heard the Torah till it was till it was read and publicly publicly read. And you know, this this is a pretty common theme actually told throughout the story, the, the the Torah of people losing uh, being in captivity, whether it's in Egypt, right, and then they have to be. Re- taught who God is. We see it with Abraham. He's called out and then he's shown who God is. And in a world where he was surrounded by other religions and there's a differentiation between Yahweh as God and what Abraham was probably familiar with. I think one of the best ways this is exemplified is in the story of Abraham and Isaac, the sacrificing of Isaac. And like we look at that from modernized and we just go, what a horrific story. Like if God spoke to me and told me that, I would say that's not God. But you have to understand it again from ancient eyes. Human sacrifice is just normal. And what God ends up doing in that story is showing how he's not like the other gods Abraham was familiar with. And we see this needing to happen again. Israel as they come out of Egypt. And now, you know, very likely, very likely when um, as the Pentateuch is being circulated and, and very much edited. And again, guys, like if this is new ideas for you. I, I encourage you that, you know, there's some great resources out there you can, you can pick up. Uh, I mean, maybe a good place to begin that also includes some introduction to like the composition and uh, of the scriptures and the best reasons and maybe the best theories for how this stuff happens like particular books come come to be uh, a great one I'd recommend is the Old Testament a historical theological and critical introduction by Richard S Hess 
I mean, it's really, this is conservative evangelical theology, so I'm not telling you anything wild here. It may be wild if you haven't heard it before, but, you know, we, we probably have uh, inspired editors, and maybe Moses has edited the story, and we don't know how the process went. The scriptures don't tell us how the process went, so we're left to really wrestle with it. But let's just say we are in exile. You are in exilic period in Babylon, and the story is being told to you again, or maybe you've just returned to Israel after exile, and something is being told to you. You need to be reminded of the truth of God's story to the people of God, Israel, and you hear Genesis 1, and you also, along with it, hear a story after story uh, and this, one of the most important, the height of your people was in David and Solomon's day. David had a tabernacle. He wanted to build a temple, but Solomon builds a temple. And you are yearning for what? The rebuilding of a temple. Why? This is like so central to your identity. Guys, it, it just, it, it just, it makes too much sense that in some way, shape, or form, this story in Genesis 1 is in many ways a temple story. But even the temple itself is not about a building. It's telling something bigger. And this is the whole point of today's today's podcast. Genesis 1 tells us an incredible, incredible story. It's a story that I can say it tells us something about God, but only when we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture that God vested in the author, in authors, invested in a particular time and place, and we humble ourselves to step into that world. And in that process, we see something that's really beautiful. I I hope one thing that we would take away from this, and and, and in the following podcast, we're going to explore a little bit of um, the second uh, creation story in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and the fall. But in this story, I hope that we'd see um, where our questions aren't answered and to not try to force answers from these questions, uh, force questions and force answers from this text that are just out, they're out of bounds. They, they simply are. And here's some of the questions that I would suggest to you guys are just out of bounds, and you can kind of pause the debate about them on the age of the earth. This is not something they're dealing with. The seven-day story, similar to the seven years of Solomon's building of the temple, is to tell a multi-layered story that is true, and it is beautiful and it's it's an it's an amazing an amazing story it's a story that gives people purpose it tells them the the truth about god it tells them the telos the 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 telos of god's um designing function for creation to abide in it to rest in it to be with his people it's amazing but it's not answering your science questions. It's, I would submit to you guys, we don't, if you want to have a debate about um, young earth, old earth, theistic evolution, this debate shouldn't be had with Genesis 1. That debate 
is a debate, and we'll address this more in future podcasts. That's a debate that we enter into not using Genesis 1 and fighting about, you know, proof texts and, and imposing ideas and questions on it that just simply aren't intended to be answered. On the next episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making, we're going to move out of Genesis 1 and move into Genesis 2. We're going to take a look at the second creation story, one that involves Adam and Eve, a talking snake, some fruit from a tree that really messed up a lot of things. We're going to try to understand Genesis 2 from ancient eyes so that we can properly understand God's inspired and intended communication through the text, through the ancient authors and audiences, so that we can derive the best proper meanings from that text and apply it to our lives. And in that process, hopefully, we can start to fill out what are maybe some of the insights from the story of Adam and Eve and the fall that can help us understand theology and science, creation, evolution, and all of that. So I invite you, please subscribe. You can follow on YouTube, iTunes, Podbean, and lots of other places where uh, podcasts are available. Thanks for subscribing. I'd love to hear from you. You can follow me even just personally on Twitter at Paul Amleitner. I'd love to get your questions there as well. So until next time, take care.